0: If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with a new season and a new case. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. More than 30 years later, is it still possible to get to the truth? And who gets to tell it? Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jenna here, and I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, which recently came back for its sixth season, The Uncertain Hour. The Uncertain Hour is an award-winning podcast from Marketplace, where host Chrissy Clark dives into the obscure policies and forgotten histories that explain who gets ahead in the U.S. and who gets left behind. And if that doesn't sound fascinating enough, the series was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This season, Chrissy investigates the for-profit companies that run many of America's welfare offices and how they're cashing in on work requirements for welfare recipients. Listen to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Sakia Gunn's friends prefer to remember the corner of Broad and Market Streets as a place Gunn liked to hang out, and not the location of her death. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead producer and host of this series. That was me in 2003. I had landed my first on-air reporting gig with Newark's WBGO, an NPR member station. I was in my mid-twenties and after working for three years as a production assistant for a commercial news station in New York City, I was excited and nervous to prove my chops as a reporter. Like, really nervous. My job mostly consisted of covering the day-to-day management and running of government and community development in Newark, New Jersey, and the Essex, Hudson, and Union County areas. Stories like then New Jersey State Attorney General Chris Christie indicting several gang members for illegal gun trafficking in Newark. U.S. Attorney Chris Christie compares the sophistication of the street gang The Bloods to the mafia of the 70s and 80s.
0: Groups like the Double Eye Set of the Bloods are the new organized crime in the state of New Jersey. They are violent, there are no rules
1: which govern their conduct. the Cleanup attempts of the Passaic River. This is not a tree hugger, kind of campaign. New York-New Jersey Baykeeper Director Andrew Wilner says a clean river will encourage people to fish, swim, and build homes along the riverfront, which will help revitalize the Lower Passaic River and Newark Bay. The re-election campaign of the late Senator Frank Lautenberg, Lautenberg supporters including Newark Mayor Sharp James, all seven Democratic Congressmen, and acting Governor Dick Cody paid $500 a head to hear MC, Senator Corzine, and keynote speaker, Illinois Senator Barack Obama.
0: I think that uh, these days, what people are hungry for out of their politicians is a sense of authenticity, uh, somebody who is real and not
1: manufactured. And then-Mayor Sharp James welcoming the New Jersey Devils to play in downtown Newark. Joined by Eastside High School's hockey team and marching band, Mayor James described Newark as a city not only ready, but eager to embrace hockey. Today, and most importantly, we officially welcome the Devils to New Jersey's largest city, Newark. All local interest stories. It's not that I didn't know what to do. I just wasn't confident in my ability to do it well yet and you can hear it in my voice. Gun's friend, Cassandra Acosta, says for her, the vigil was a public reminder that gays and lesbians are in the community. This is
2: just, you know, to let, let people know we're still out here, you know. We're still waiting for our, you know, to us to be recognized.
1: I first met WBGO's news director, Doug Doyle, as a sports reporter for my previous station. When I told him I was looking to broaden my work experience, but couldn't find anything in New York, He suggested I volunteer with WBGO for a pledge drive. Soon, I was offered a freelance reporting position. Doug later told me he heard me talking in person and said exactly what I had been waiting to hear. Have you ever considered on air? I immediately took the job and was so eager to jump into all things Essex County. Sakia Gunn's murder was one of my first big stories. organizers plan to continue the candlelight vigil for several years to come. In my few months reporting for WBGO, I was sent to cover at least three memorial stories. A young person in Newark lost their life, usually over a misunderstanding, an overreaction, or a perceived slight. The gatherings were sad, upsetting, and always left me with complex feelings of depression, disappointment, and confusion. I was also the only Black person in our tiny four-person news department. In Newark, I'm Jenna Flanagan, WBGO News. To maintain the expected journalistic objectivity and emotional distance, I learned to numb myself, or at least compartmentalize the pain of being in the presence of that much raw grief. Journalists are supposed to report on the events, facts, and ideas of other people and keep their own opinions to themselves. This can be a unique challenge for journalists of color. Covering black and brown communities while conveying little to no emotion can be hard when you might find yourself identifying or at least feeling like you intimately know the people you're covering. The opposite of objectivity is indifference. And displaying that makes you come across as cold and uncaring making it all the more difficult to develop trust with sources and tell a full and nuanced story after all no one is without a point of view or opinion based on their ethnic racial religious or sexual orientation when those identities are incorporated into any organization or practice they enrich the outcome in journalism's case, they enrich the story. As a young Black woman who was only a decade older than Sakia at the time of her death, getting assigned to cover the story of her death struck a much deeper nerve in me because I saw myself in her. While I'm not queer, during my own teen years, my gender presentation often bordered on, as my mother bluntly put it, Butch. Like Zakia, I also preferred baggy clothes to form-fitting ones, sneakers to dress shoes. And while I didn't rock the same cornrows as Sakia did, my hair was often simply pulled back into a ponytail. For me, it wasn't about communicating a specific gender preference or presentation. It was simply about comfort. For a teen girl, developing into her adult body, not feeling as though I had to lead with my sexuality, felt safe. As an onlooker, I also admired and frankly was a little jealous of kids like Zakiya, whose ability to boldly and confidently eschew gender presentation norms in favor of what felt natural to them. And besides, in the early 90s, I saw a lot of my white peers doing it, and I didn't fully grasp how the perception changed when I did it. Unlike Sakia, I didn't grow up in a predominantly black urban neighborhood. My childhood was spent nestled in the Hudson Valley college town of New Paltz, New York. My mother, a writer and English professor, taught at the university. And what I didn't understand until I left is that I grew up in a bubble. New Paltz was, and still very much is, a majority white town. In the 80s and 90s of my childhood, I spent my entire primary and secondary education as one of a handful of black children in my respective grade, and often the only one in my classroom. Out of my grade level classmates, there was little variation in the student body. From the group that started kindergarten to our graduating high school class so it's no surprise that i assimilated to the dominant group making friends and navigating childhood together my parents were keen to make sure that i understood i was black driving me 40 minutes out of town every sunday to attend a black church going out of their way and sometimes paying extra to buy me black dolls and conducting Second school at home to ensure I knew Black history from a Black perspective. However, my school days were spent as the only Black child in my classroom, and as a result, those days were spent fully immersed in white culture. Most of what I heard about majority Black communities through news reports were communities struggling to survive against the backdrop of gangs, crime, in urban blight. The 6 o'clock news was filled with stories of a young person, usually Black or brown, who lost their life to violence. There was usually little to no follow-up, giving the impression that the community simply moved on. But for kids like Sakia, who called Newark home, that just wasn't the case. Being free,
3: not having to worry about And it's sad to say this, but it's the truth. Not having to worry about the crime around you. Like, we were able to stay outside and go places and not have to worry about nobody kidnapping kids, nobody shooting out, nobody having all these turf wars or or gang wars or anything
1: like that, you know, issues. This is Valencia Bailey again, Sakia's best friend and play cousin. The Newark she says they grew up in had more of a communal neighborhood feel, where everyone looked out for the kids on the block.
3: Everyone knew each other. We grew up. Our parents grew up with each other. Um, We grew up with each other, you know what I mean? Their parents grew up with each other. People actually owned their houses also back then and took pride in that, you know? So it was a lot of homeowners around in Newark. And a lot of Black, should I say Black homeowners, okay? Like you were able to be a child, like you know, the, you at when I was growing up in the 80s, you were a, in the 90s, you were able to be a child, you were able to enjoy your childhood.
1: The way Valencia describes her childhood in Newark fits with Sakia's other friends, family, and contemporaries, but it stands in stark contrast to the Newark most outsiders know of. Part
0: of me deeply believes that what happened in the 60s and even later in the 70s, in Newark it was uh, so much about uh, progression and uh, rebellion and freedom. And I believe um, just knowing a lot of those folks in my adulthood, a lot of those folks were drawn to Newark uh, because of the maybe some of the very th- same things that a lot, a lot of folks were afraid of.
1: Brian Epps is a Newark native. Although he lives in Virginia now, he's a consultant and community builder who cut his teeth in Newark. Brian's acutely aware of how the 1967 riots, or the political activism, depending on your point of view, impacted the world's view of Newark.
0: Folks were wise enough to know what was happening to the communities that they had come to. And um, specifically African Americans, right, are refugees from the South leaving Jim Crow, leaving lynchings, leaving sharecropping, essentially continuation of slavery, came to places like Newark for freedom. They found their communities being destroyed by these projects that they, I believe, had the foresight to know that they were not going to be able to be a part of and participants of, and at the same time facing police brutality, and at the same time facing a lack of equity. You know, many of the same issues that we're, 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 we're talking about now.
1: The tensions that exploded in Newark in 1967, as part of America's long, hot summer, were more than 150 separate uprisings swept across cities nationwide. In Newark, what started as a protest against the beating of a taxi driver by police spun into five days of civil unrest until the National Guard put down demonstrations and occupied the city with armored vehicles. Thanks to the unflinching eye of TV cameras, those five days have defined Newark in the eyes of many, overshadowing much of the city's history and the root causes of the struggles that persist to this day.
0: From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids, to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast, only from NPR. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With Episodes Weekly... Uncover is your home for in depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find
1: Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. Founded in the 1600s, Newark is one of the oldest cities in the country, after Boston and New York. But its significance is often left out of textbooks because it really didn't come into its own until the Industrial Revolution. At the beginning of the 20th century, Newark was a manufacturing powerhouse producing essential commodities like sheet iron and leather. Skyscrapers defined the downtown skyline and streetcars began crisscrossing the city. And in 1915, the Newark Evening News declared the intersection of Broad and Market as one of the busiest crossroads in the country. But by the 1930s, the boom times were nearing an end, and the economic effects are still being felt today.
0: 80% of the people who work in Newark don't live in nork and 80% of the people who live in nork don't work in Newark. It's, uh, you can see it visibly every day, the folks coming in and coming out. It's, it's very strange uh, to, to witness.
1: Like Brian Epps, scholars, historians, and community organizers believe that the main culprit is Newark's Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk. As part of the New Deal, it was intended to refinance home mortgages in default to prevent foreclosures. It was also intended to expand home buying opportunities. Instead, it was a key promoter of redlining, which helped residential segregation and essentially created the racial wealth gap in the city. The government-supported divestment from Newark came at the same time as the great migration of African Americans from the Jim Crow South to the northern states. While Newark's white population nosedived from over 400,000 in 1930 to less than 170,000 by 1970, its black population grew to become the majority. But instead of freedom, many Black Newarkers found themselves under white rule. By 1967, only 11% of police officers in the Newark Police Department were Black. After Hulk helped build suburbs and promote redlining, dividing neighborhoods along racial lines, a policy of urban renewal came in. Entire neighborhoods were bulldozed to make way for government projects like when nearly 150 acres of Newark's Central Ward was offered up on the chopping block to build University Hospital. At the same time, residents had little to no say in the planning.
0: What I saw as a kid was um, burning burning buildings still, even in the 80s. People were burning down houses and storefronts in order to get insurance money. Um, I saw abandoned lots and not knowing why full blocks, full city blocks were abandoned full city blocks were leveled and were
1: open fields. As blocks of homes were reduced to piles of rubble, brutalist-style public housing towers became the only option for many of the city's working poor residents. And a bittersweet nickname took hold, Brick City. Now, the exact origin of the moniker is still debated. Some historians point to the prevalence of brick manufacturing in the area, while others point to a core of large brick buildings that made up Newark's downtown. It's also possible to point to the brown brick public housing towers that the community was forced into after urban renewal. Regardless, the idea of Brick City speaks to the durability of a community that is held on and held out, making Newark its home despite circumstances that might otherwise push it out. Brian Epps says by the time his family bought a brownstone in downtown Newark, it was a neighborhood struggling to rebuild itself from the turmoil of the 1960s and 70s. But it was also a community that looked out for one another with a lot of pride.
0: So um, my very early years, I was living on a street um, filled with abandoned housing, uh, filled with uh, lack of services. To, uh, so, for example, the garbage men Uh, didn't realize that folks had moved back onto the street so often they wouldn't pick up the trash. It was busy in all the ways that you would think of a city. Lots of commuters coming in downtown during the day for work. And um, as the years went by, it became a very colorful, very, very colorful neighborhood. So there were a few folks who lived on other blocks surrounding us who had been there for decades. Um, Lots of students that started to move in, lots of retirees, lots of queer folk, folks of all different races and um my impressions were of safety folks looked out for me and my brother um and i'm not just talking about like the well-to-do folks um my father there was a a drug dealer who lived up the block who uh one day came up to my father and me and my brothers while we were walking and said oh you you live here you you know i see you going to work every day is that your car and my dad said yeah that's her car he said you'll never have to worry about it So in a city where that was known for um, car thefts when I was growing up, we've seen New Jersey Drive. Um, my family never had our cars stolen in all the years that we lived there. Right? So folks really looked out for us. Um, I felt safe in, in so many different ways.
1: It's that same sense of community safety that Sakia's friends, like Valencia Bailey, say they felt growing up in Newark.
3: We had no fear. We had no reason for nothing for fear. Like It, it was our world. This was like, literally, that's how we looked at it. This was our world.
1: Brian says he was a freshman in college when he learned of Sakia's murder. He remembers his mother engaging him in a conversation with another adult about their own concerns for his safety as a young gay man, simply because they theorized the neighborhood safety Brian had been raised with still veiled something much more dangerous below the surface.
0: You know, if I think about Sakia's life, I don't, believed that she feared, right, until the moment of, of the assault, right? She was, you know, they were living freely in a lot of ways. Um, so I say that to say that there, um, that, that progress, that spirit of progress and liberation was present in the city, even with a lot of homophobia and, and, um, and, um, and threats. There were folks who, I know to be gay now who were obviously gay to me then, uh, and no matter how stereotypically queer folks were, they were not allowed to, to name themselves They didn't feel name free, free to name themselves in a lot of ways. Um, at least in that, in that structure, in that, in that environment. So I, I feel like on the streets of Newark we're, were safe, but in maybe in a, in a lot of households, right. in a lot of maybe institutions,
1: the same freedom didn't exist. While there were places and spaces where queer people may have been tolerated while their identity was ignored, Sakia's mother, Latanagan, made sure her home was not one of those spaces.
4: I remember the day she came home and said, Mom, I'm different. I said, you're not different. You're a human being. You just got another choice. And whatever it is that works for you, love is love. That's the way I felt. You're still my daughter. I'm not going like kick you to the curb. I'm still going to be that mother, and I'm still that mother. And now that she's gone, I'm also a mother to other LGBTs. And it's, you know, and then I got another one.
1: Latana still remembers her daughter as the captivating kid that befriended so many of her peers.
4: Well, as a young girl, Sakia was bright, energetic. Full of jokes. Uh, I mean, she had a beautiful smile. And she she was willing to help people a lot. Just like an average child. And like I said, a parent don't have to accept it. Due to whatever reason, religion, this, that, or other. But you should still show your child some, some type of love.
1: She adds that Sakia was a good kid who earned her freedom of movement around the city, and as for her gender presentation,
4: as long as she brought good grades and I didn't care how she dressed.
1: Latana <laughs> says the family still feels Sakia's loss like it was yesterday. However, it's the love and support that she says keeps them going.
4: Well, this is the thing: we are at peace with our space, but Sakia's all over Newark now. So that question should be towards them. You know, I, this is something that still seems like yesterday happened because of the support that I greatly greatly appreciate from the community.
1: As she prepared for the unthinkable, attending her child's funeral, Latana remembers how Sakia's friends showed up in mass to support no matter what obstacles they faced in doing so.
4: They marched there and ambulance was picking them up, taking them somewhere else. They was dropping like hot flies. crying, upset, it was hot. They was there bright and early. Most were there before I was there. And then we buried her where you could look right out of West Side Window and see where she was buried at. So every day after that, when they went to school, they look out the window, they see where all the flowers and stuff was
1: at. An estimated crowd of over 2,500 showed up at Perry Funeral Home in Newark. The 150 capacity hall was filled with people standing in the aisles and a receiving line spilled out of the building, nearly blocking access for Sakia's own family to enter. While support from Sakia's friends was unwavering, Latonista remembers how administrators at Newark's Westside High handled her daughter's death.
4: This was so all the principal, like he wasn't supportive of it. He, y'all gonna be in school, you walk out, you get in trouble, all the stuff. Like he did he, he, get back to class, that's over, no talking about her, Uh, not really not talking about her, but he wasn't trying to support these girls grieving.
1: All the guys, girls, everybody. Terrell Addy, one of Sakia's childhood friends, echoes Latana's sentiments. He says learning of Sakia's murder was shocking enough and how their school addressed the situation only deepened the trauma.
5: They should cancel school. Uh, It was no reason for anybody to be there.
1: Terrell says he felt the school took a cold and distant, matter-of-fact approach. To a student body that was shocked, stunned, and grieving,
5: like this is like reality, like it, didn't, like you know all that stuff as a kid. Like I, I feel like all of us should have been in therapy, or all of us should have had some type of counseling at that time. And then when the kids hit, it was just like everybody was just walking zombies. Like you didn't feel real. I don't know why we was in school, you know.
1: We reached out to the Newark School District and offered an opportunity to comment on this allegation. Their communications director responded that, quote, we are going to pass on this opportunity at this time, end quote. Even with the lack of support from the district, Latana says community groups like the Church of Liberation and Truth still stepped up to make sure that thousands of grieving kids were taken care of.
4: There was four different places. They had a church that fed the kids. They had a gym that fed the kids. They had a community center that fed the kids because there was so many people.
1: Zakia's friends and classmates were understandably shaken, but there was one child in the funeral home also trying to process this massive loss.
2: Well, I'm Kaya, <laughs> and I'm the younger sister.
1: Nikaya Gun or Kaya was only eight when her sister was murdered, and while she only had a few years with Sakia, she says it's been hard to process her feelings from everyone else's.
2: You know, the whole crazy thing about this whole situation, and why I really don't say much a lot, because everybody around me has memories.
1: She says her sister's memory is like an ever-present spirit that has followed her throughout her life.
2: So. It's crazy because to this day, I still got people
1: coming up to me like,
2: oh, little Kaya, you little Kia, little sister.
1: She says some people have even shown her portrait style tattoos of Zakia. But the hardest part was having to pass through Broad and Market every day, knowing what happened to her sister there.
2: I'm like, is this ever going to stop? Like at first... When it first started, when I had to be downtown, like coming back and forth from school, and had to just stand down there, it, it, it was like a, it wasn't a good feeling, and it kind of got annoying <laughs> how people was walking up to me all the time because I was still grieving or still trying to understand what? exactly what happened. But now it was all love.
1: Nikaya, like her sister, is also a lesbian, and so support from groups like Liberation and Truth. Part of the Unity Fellowship Church movement and the newly formed Newark Pride Alliance were always present. But that does not mean she hasn't been exposed to the harsh criticism and judgment of people who blame Sakia for her own death.
2: I know one thing that I read that kind of pissed, or, like rubbed me off. Like when I was, was on the comments every here and every now and then like the YouTube um comments or if you look at the obituary on the on Google and they put people put comments on there and they were like, well, what? she at that age. Why was she out at that there? time of night. Like, I- like that, that that like that made a difference of uh, the situation. Listen, right. Whether she was 15 or 25, he still felt how he felt about the situation. So I don't think the age would have would've changed the circumstance. know, like, he was wrong from the from the get-go. Mm-hmm.
1: Nakaya says she has to numb herself to certain feelings of heartbreak or rage, and that has allowed her to keep her cool in trying situations.
2: I'm goofy, like nothing bothers like me. Her. I'm like Tim I really don't care. Like, I'm really, at this point at 28, it's like I'm just numb to everything. Like, so nothing really could say to me that's gonna get me to come out of character. Like, nothing really bothers me anymore. Like, nothing surprises me anymore. Like I, I've been around this low life is what I call him. I've been around his brother before, face to
1: face. So it, it, it it's weird, Like it's really weird. Newark is a city, but in a lot of ways, it's a large, small town. And so Nakia bumping into the brother of her sister's killer seems surreal and inevitable.
2: He didn't know who I was, but I got the spell on who he was. We was at a function, a cookout. I don't have conversations with this man and everything. I could have easily retaliated, but that's not gonna bring back. So
1: there's that, so. Everyone who knew Sakia dealt with her death in their own way. For his part, Terrell Laddie chose to honor his close friend through his current profession. Terrell is a police officer. Although he works on the other side of the country, he says telling and retelling Sakia's story is essential to individual and community healing.
5: Trauma, right? And this is why that a lot of kids need to kind of revisit this. Uh, also, like, actually, like, it's just like not 11 right? You know, like, all the type of traumas that we have, we kind of, like, disassociate with or kind of like block it off and act like it's a norm. It's not right. You have to kind of address it like I'm rethinking and revisiting these feelings and emotions. And it just lets you know that sometimes we block it out, but it's actually still there, or sometimes we actually escape. So everybody has different way they deal with trauma. So some people might not even remember going to the funeral or remember like, you know, dealing with certain things because they mentally checked out and wasn't there.
1: In hindsight, that incredibly traumatized, mentally checked out place is where I was introduced to Sakia's story. I had never covered a story that big or that emotional. And as an outsider, I struggled to make the kind of connections that would allow me to fully explore the intricacies of what did happen, what didn't happen, and why. Brian Epp says, part of what I was coming up against is Newark's collective scar tissue, not only from the 67 riots, but years of divestment that prevented people from taking root, who are not only part of the community coming into the city without showing any interest of being part of it.
0: I think along with the pride that folks have in the city, there is can be a mistrust of, of outsiders. Um, and uh, a test, a litmus test for everybody who even is an insider is how Nork are you, right? How much, how much, you know, how can I out Nork you? <laughs> um, how real, how authentically Nork are you? Even the brand of Nork, um, you know, Brook City, it has, it might not have any meaning to somebody who's not from Nork, right? It's not something that is meant to resonate to the masses and to carry out, to carry outside of the city's borders is very much. Um, an insular brand
1: that folks are proud of. Sakia's final resting place is in Newark's Fairmount Cemetery, which is in direct eyesight of some of Westside High School's classrooms. Sakia's friends no longer walk the halls, and her sister, Nakia Gunn, attended Shabazz High School in a different part of town. She says after two decades, people are finally ready to talk about what happened at Broad and Market
2: it's down 20 years I think everybody reached that point where we're we're taking a breath now where we're smiling a little little more so it's kind of taking a turn to where we can wake up and not crying Mm -hmm. I mean we're having mentally we're in a better headspace. I think collectively to where it's not it's not sad anymore it's not depressing anymore we're more happy now about the situation so when I say her name I don't want to break down anymore We can talk, we can laugh, we can joke about it. Not the situation, but her as a whole, where I don't want to cry anymore.
1: As time went on and the news cycle pushed Sakia's story further and further into the recent past, the conversations about the multicultural, multiracial nature of queerness developed and expanded. We learned new words like intersectionality, And learned that LGBT was only part of the spectrum, and our understanding of what it truly meant to be questioning, intersex, or asexual. We learned, some of us very reluctantly, about the importance of pronouns and the very real marginalization of black trans women. Every step of the way, the story of Sakia Gunn remained on my mind. As more and more time passed, I wondered how and if her story was being told. After Broad and Market was co-produced by the WNET Group's Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. Aaron McIntyre is the executive producer. Daniel Greenberg is the executive in charge of production. Juleka Lantigua is the series editor. Paulina Velasco is the managing editor. Shant Alexander is the associate producer. Cindy Rodriguez and Chelsea Rugg are producers. Michelle Baker is an associate producer. Elizabeth Nakano mixed this episode. Kate Gallagher is the fact checker. Kojin Tashiro is lead sound designer. Cover art designed by Karen Brazell. Original mural art by Tatiana basla The legal consultants are Marta Castang and Matt Clark. For Chasing the Dream, Eugenia Harvey is the executive producer. Maria Stoyan is the senior producer. Catherine Carpenter is a producer and Shannon Damiano is the production assistant. Audience engagement provided by Lindsay Horvitz. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Walkenheim III.